Genesis chapter 3 will be our focus this morning. I don't know how many sermons I've preached in this series, 12 or 14, I think. Um, But we're finally out of Genesis 2 and into Genesis 3. Genesis 1, the big picture of creation, uh, of all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then Moses delineates the six days of creation. On the seventh day, God rests. In chapter 2, Moses goes back to the creation of man and tells us more about Adam and then Eve and and, uh, the fact that Adam was made out of the garden, placed in the garden, given the prohibition, don't eat from the one tree. Then he was put to sleep. Out of his side comes his wife. And then chapter 3 has the tragic fall into sin. Eve was deceived, and then she gave the fruit to her husband, and he ate. Now, recently, we've been considering the two Edenic trees that get special attention in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Genesis, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you're like me, you've probably heard a whole bunch of legendary interpretations of just what the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil are. I'm going to have to deal with those tough words at the end of chapter 3 today because it sounds like God barred Adam, kicked Adam out of the garden because if he ate from the tree of life in his fallen state, he would live forever in a fallen state. That's what it looks like, right? This is for your thinking. If that, in fact, is the case, the devil told the truth. We'll get that to there in a minute. So these trees, both trees are mentioned before and after the fall into sin by Adam and Eve. The tree of life is picked up elsewhere outside of the book of Genesis in Revelation twice. And then in the book of Psalms, we looked at that last week. And the reason why we're studying these trees Weird sermon, huh? The two special Edenic trees. You talk to a friend on Monday, hey, what did your pastor preach on Edenic trees? Really? The reason why we're studying these uh, um, Edenic trees is because we're considering ourselves, this side of the fall into sin and saved, and our basic responsibility as it's related to the law of God. We've seen in various places that all men and all women are violators of divine law, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. All men also have what Paul calls the works of the law written on their hearts. That was true of both Adam and Eve prior to and after their fall into sin. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God before their fall into sin, Genesis 1.27. We are all created in the image of God, but Things aren't the same now, this side of the divine judgment upon Adam sinning, as they were prior to the fall into sin. We're not our own Adams and Eves. We have original sin and its guilt and pollution. Adam and Eve were created with what uh, is called original righteousness. They were made morally upright with ability to act righteously as regulated by the law on their hearts so that creation in the image of God included original righteousness in accord with the law of God. We, We don't have that now. And I began focusing on Adam because the Bible focuses on Adam as a public person. Um, you notice how Paul doesn't say, in Eve all died. You know, if you just read the section in, that we read this morning, and you go to a couple other places, one of them's in 2 Corinthians 11, it, and the other one's in 1 Timothy 2. Eve was deceived. Seems like she might have sinned first. But her sin didn't bring divine judgment upon her and Adam and subsequently the entire human race. Only Adam's sin did. Adam is one who represents others. In Adam, all die. Through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. That's Paul, Romans 5.12. 
So part of Adam's vocation or his calling was to obey God and to enjoy him and the, the created gifts that were all around him, including his wife. Remember the sermon on the wife thing, you know, when, when Adam didn't have to take a class on, uh, on marriage. He was able, once he awoke and saw his wife, to draw conclusions based on that created thing other than him, Eve, and he basically says, I think I said this, I got a wife, without a whole bunch of instruction and, you know, a voice from heaven saying, by the way, this is your wife, you have no idea what a wife is, you have no idea what any of this is, but just trust me, kind of thing. There was this thing in Adam, this ability to look outside of Adam and draw proper conclusions based on this thing in him. We still have the thing, word of law written on our hearts, but we don't have what they call original righteousness, the ability to always look out and conclude properly and then will and act appropriately. We sin. So we started looking at Adam because Adam's the federal head of the human race. Also looking at Adam helps us understand what we need as far as the remedy goes. If you understand Adam's identity, he was the first created son of God in communion with God, who represented others with law of God written on his heart, with original righteousness. If you understand all that, it'll help you understand what the remedy has to be. The remedy has to be not God puts us back in the garden and we start over on our own, because you can't deal with the guilt of our sins that way. We have piled up guilt, the just liability to punishment, over our, the entirety of our lives. And just putting us back in the garden so that we can run the race and hopefully win, unlike Adam who failed, um, doesn't deal with our guilt. We need a better remedy than that. We need a remedy that deals with the presence of guilt, the presence of sin. We need forgiveness. We need cleansing. We need help with reference to the lack of righteousness. We need a last Adam. And that's what we get. We also looked at what happened after the prohibition in Genesis 2.17. Genesis 2.17 has the prohibition about eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's when Eve comes on the scene. Uh, we looked at uh, the first marriage of Scripture following the lead of the Apostle Paul. You remember at the end of Ephesians 5, Paul basically says, I'm talking about marriage here, but when I just referenced Genesis 2.24... I was talking about Christ and the church so that we, we get Christ, uh, Adam as a type of Christ and Eve as a type of the church. So we saw in the first marriage of Adam and Eve a prefigurement of Christ and the church. And I think I said this. So the first sin in one sense by Adam is the first example of a husband not cherishing and nourishing his bride. But I have good news. Our Lord Jesus is just the opposite. He is a bridegroom who nourishes and cherishes his bride. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. Remember he said that? So get assurance from that. By the way, that's the best place to get assurance. The promises of God, not your own heart and life. You know how that goes? You're looking for grounds of assurance in your own heart? It's putrid. Oh. But if you go outside of yourself, extrospective, and you look to the promises of God terminating on Christ, that's where you can get real assurance. Now, all this brought us to these special trees, and I have been asking questions of the trees. We looked at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because that gets more press uh, in terms of uh, details about it. What was the function of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And here's what I said. The prohibition, don't eat from this tree, was an exploratory law, uh, a positive law, that is a law added to that which he already had naturally. He had a natural law written on his heart. This is another law external to Adam, revealed by God, added to the law of nature for the trial of the obedience of Adam. 
This is covenant of works kind of language, probation. Adam was rational, that is, he could reason and think. And so the prohibition about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it was, it was a test. Adam wasn't created morally neutral. He was created with original righteousness. Adam had a sense or knowledge of what constitutes good and evil by virtue of his creation. Does anybody want to say, well, well, Adam had no idea what right and wrong was by virtue of his creation in the image of God. No, we don't want to say that because the Bible is very clear. Right after Adam and Eve ate from this tree, we read these words in Genesis 3, 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. This, and they knew must refer to their experience. They had never experienced this, though they had knowledge that some things are always right and some things are always wrong. They had that by virtue of their creation. What they didn't have was what they got upon the eating of it, that is divine judgment, and this sense of, I've actually done wrong. I haven't just thought that some things are wrong. I did something I shouldn't have. So that some state of existence different from Adam's created state would come to Adam as a form of divine judgment based on the words of Genesis 2.17. In the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Now, we read the section in Genesis 3. When he ate, did did Eve have a funeral? Wow, he died. His soul is absent from his body. No. Did he go to hell? The moment he ate from it, Adam's gone. Where is he? He went to hell. Because God told him, the day you eat from it, you shall surely die. Did death come upon Adam when he ate the fruit, ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? We want to say yes, for good reason. God declared that as divine judgment. But what kind of death came to him? We'll get that. We'll get there. In a moment. So the function of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a probation, was a test. How about the tree of life? What was the function of the tree of life? Was it infused by God with power to give eternal life? That, I think that's the default view of most people. What is the tree of life? It is a tree that has infused power by God that if you ate from it, you'd never die. I called that the pharmaceutical view or the medicinal view. And one reason I don't think the tree of life was pharmaceutical is this. It would mean a finite thing, a tree, was given finite power, because the tree's not God, to extend man's life to an extra-creational state. You get what I mean there? Okay, he makes him in his image, Adam and Eve, male and female, he made them. He puts the tree of life there. If the in theory, ate the tree of life by virtue of some sort of power in the tree put there by God, an extra-creational state of life would come upon them. Now, I don't think that's actually what's happening here. But if we go back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we'll get at, actually... It doesn't work there either, the medicinal view, the pharmaceutical view. Because when they ate an extra, when they ate, when Adam and he, after Eve took and gave to Adam and he ate, that's when death was enacted. That's when death came upon them, whatever death means there. Spiritual death, you know, um, and, and ultimately eternal death unless God would clothe them somehow, some way. Um, an extra creational state came upon them when they ate, right? They weren't the same. But was it by virtue of their mere eating? Was it by virtue of some power in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Or was it the enactment of divine judgment upon them? Was it an act of God? It was an act of God. So the pharmaceutical view of either one 
I, I think is wrong. I'm not the only one. But there's another reason why I don't think the tree of life was pharmaceuticals, because how the rest of the Bible evokes it or calls upon it. Remember last week I quoted a guy named Turretin. The tree obtained its name principally by reason of signification. Now that is an important word. Tree of life, what is it? It is a sign that signifies not mere treeness, but something beyond and better than the tree itself. It was a symbol of the immortality which would have been bestowed upon Adam if he had persevered in his first state, In quote. So the tree of life was a sign signifying, we use this language with the Lord's day, a sign signifying, a visible sign signifying the incarnate Son of God um, assuming our nature and, 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 and giving himself unto death, even death on a cross, for us. The tree of life was similar. It was a sign signifying something other than mere treeness, something better, a quality of life the Bible ends up calling eternal life. We looked at this last week. Eternal life, which Adam fell short of due to his sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, who's the first sinner? Adam, what did he fall short of? Glory, a state of existence, according to his human nature, that is better than his created state. And he entered, he didn't enter into that better state because he sinned. So he didn't attain to eternal life. But Christ obtains to eternal life due to his righteous law-keeping. So that's my review. Sorry. The review was such for you a little and me mostly. I got to get my brain heading in the right direction. So now we got to look at Genesis 3 because all that was pre-fall into sin, or most of it was. So if I had a title, will I do? The Devil's Lies, The Eating of the Tree, uh, and The Divine Judgment enacted or executed. So let's first of all look at the serpents or the devil's deceptions and lies. By the way, that uh, the serpent of old, the book of Revelation chapter 12, identifies the devil as utilizing the serpent as a tool. Weird how the devil would have that kind of power, but he does. So we have the, the serpent's deceptions and lies in the first five verses of Genesis. Note verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? That's Revelation 12, nine, by the way, that calls the devil the serpent of old. But we also can use not only Revelation 12, 9 to help us to know what's going on here, but listen to 2 Corinthians eleven three: The serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. That's Paul in 2 Corinthians eleven three. So that's what's going on here. These are ploys of deception. There's a lot to learn here about our own hearts, by the way. We're all uh, Evenic in one sense, Evenic, not Edenic. This event recorded for us by Moses depicts a purposed act of the serpent, a crafty attempt at deception. You can learn about how you get deceived and how I get deceived just by reading this carefully. Here we have an intruder in paradise. I I think Adam was responsible in part to keep all intruders out. And so this is bad news. We have an intruder here. Note that the serpent speaks to the woman. This has caused interpreters to say, well, where's Adam? Is, is something wrong here? Is Adam like behind a bush and listening? Is Adam someplace else? Did he abdicate his responsibility to love and cherish his wife? Those are good questions. I'm not exactly sure. I don't think it's the... Those are rabbit trails you can go down if you want. By the way, if your kids ask those kind of questions when you're reading this at home, don't lop their heads off. It's good that they're inquisitive. They're asking questions. Like I remember one time I told a young man 
very young. I said, you talk a lot. He says, well, I'm just inquisitive. Note well what he said here. Indeed, ah, indeed, Eve, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. So the crafty serpent is speaking to get, seeking to get Eve to doubt God's goodness. Here's the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, six days of creation, makes Adam, makes Eve. Uh, after putting, making Adam outside the garden, he puts Adam in the garden, then he makes Eve, get the prohibition and all that stuff. But he's withholding something from you. He's not as good as you thought. If God is good, why would he withhold something from you? I think that's what he's saying. I say this because of the serpent's words in verses 4 and 5. Let's look at those verses. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall sure, you surely shall not die. Full stop. T or F? True or false? False. In the day that you eat from it, you shall surely dies attacking the word of God and the goodness of God. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, you're not going to die. Your eyes will be opened. You'll experience knowledge on a higher level than your created state. And you will be like God. Pharmaceutical view of the tree, by the way. Knowing good and evil. Note two things. First, the serpent says, you, shall, you surely shall not die. But God had said, in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Okay, when we're tempted to question the veracity and the goodness of God's word, that's, that's what happens to us. We look at something, we remember, ah, I probably shouldn't either look at it or do this thing. But, you know, just a little Second, the serpent says, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Not only will you not die, these are me putting words in the devil's, the serpent's mouth now. Not only will you not die, but your created state will be advanced to a better state. Your eyes are going to be opened. God has held back information from you. There's more to it that he hasn't told you. The tree, putting words in the serpent's mouth, the tree's medicinal. And he didn't tell you that. The tree's pharmaceutical. God is holding you back from being like him. Partaking to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil will cause your created state to be transformed into a godlike state. One of the old commentators said, The serpent claims God promised divinity to our first parents. Actually, God hid the promise of it. God knows this. This is serpent again. God knows this, but he didn't tell you. God knows that if you eat from it, you'll have a higher experience of knowledge and you'll be like him, but he hasn't told you that. I'm actually telling you this for your own good. That's the serpent, okay? Right? See, the seasoned saints are going, no, no. Been there, done that, okay? Learned that a long time ago. Uh, serpent again he's not as good as you thought he's telling you not to eat from it but he really knows if you do you'll be better than your created state and you'll be like him and he'd be envious of you he'd be jealous here's what uh, one of my friends on my shelf says this is Matthew Poole from the 17th century. 
If you would have the whole truth of the matter and God's design in that prohibition, it is only this, he knoweth that you shall be so far from dying that ye shall certainly be entered into a new and more noble kind of life. Putting words in the serpent's mouth again. They would be like God in this new, noble kind of life. Another commentator from the 16th century says this, Satan promised divinity if they would eat of the forbidden tree's fruit. The crafty deceptions and lies were presented to Eve. Let's look at verses 2 and 3 before we move on. And the woman said to the serpent, okay, so this is not bad so far, um, except that Adam's not there or he's not partaking in any of this discussion. From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. Okay, so that's obviously referring to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because that's the prohibition. The day you eat from it, you shall surely die. And this seems, these words by Eve, seem to be a corrective statement in response to the serpent's words at the end of verse 1. When he says, uh, when she says, or touch it, you shall not eat from it or touch it. Did God prohibit them from touching the forbidden tree or fruit from the tree? And the answer is, well, no. And you can hear sermons preach, she's adding to the word of God. <laughs> right? Don't do that. I'm not so sure that's the way we should read that. How about this? It's probably an entailment of the prohibition. Don't eat from the fruit of the tree. Okay, if I'm not supposed to eat it, should I go over there and fondle it? No. <laughs> Enticements to sin engaged by us are themselves sin. There's a cultural application to what I just said. We can talk about it later if you want to know. I don't think it's necessarily a sin. I think she's, she's using logic. She's, she's doing natural theology. She's drawing conclusions based on the prohibition and the thing out there and saying, you know, if he tells us not to eat of it, we probably shouldn't even, matter of fact, we shouldn't even touch it. So I don't, I'm, I don't look at Eve down my nose here and say, quit adding to the, bio, or to, the, to the word of God. Now, having looked at the serpent's words and Eve's, let's consider the eating of the forbidden fruit. This is found in Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Now, this is Moses' explanation of what's going on there. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and, she, and, and he ate. Now this is very interesting. Because Moses' next words aren't, and lightning struck them, and they were cast into hell, body and soul. Now, it doesn't say that, right? She was hooked by the serpent's deceptions and lies. She fell into transgression, 1 Timothy 2.14. 2, Isn't that interesting? She fell into transgression, who sinned first? It's a hard question. It looks like Eve. But death, sin and death, came by virtue of one man. 
So we have to make a distinction between Eve and Adam. Eve is not the federal head, the covenantal head of the entire human race. Adam is. Right after Adam eats, we read these words. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Okay, so some, now notice, were opened. I I think we get Adam there. Were caused to be opened. They were enabled to see things they weren't before this, I think, divine judgment came upon them. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. That's Genesis 3-7. Duped by the devil, their eyes were opened. Now you think they're walking around with their physical eyes closed before there, and they sinned, and then their physical eyes opened? No, that's not what's going on, right? It's got to be the eyes of their intellect, their soul, their heart. There's some sort of consciousness uh, came upon them that they didn't have before. Duped by the devil, their eyes were opened, but not as promised by the serpent. Right? The serpent said, hey, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to get some knowledge. You're going to be like God. It's going to be great. Matter of fact, God knows that it's going to be greater than your created state. It's going to be an extra created state that you can bring upon yourself by eating the medicinal fruit, by taking the pill. How about this? Do you think they knew they were unclothed before they partook? I mean, if we could say, hey, Adam and Eve, you guys realize you're naked? From the hand of the creator, I think they would say, yeah, what's the big deal? This, there's something more going on than, oh, they didn't know they were naked because their physical eyes were closed. Once they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their physical eyes were opened. Oh, we're naked. No, we're not reading. Don't read it that way. Surely they knew they were unclothed before this. But now, something's different, right? A sense of guilt has come upon them. And the guilt isn't because they're naked. It's a sin to be naked. It can't be a sin to be naked. God made Adam and Eve naked. Their sense of guilt came upon them, not because they were naked, but because they had sinned and had been judged guilty by God, so that an extra-creational state of existence was brought to them. The occasion was the eating of the fruit, but the efficient cause was the maker who warned them not to. So now let's look at the divine judgment enacted, because there's divine judgment in this passage. There's also divine mercy, which we'll get at in the next hour. The judgment enacted. I'm going to look at this uh, judgment enacted uh, uh, in a twofold manner. I think there's invisible judgment going on. I just described it. But there's also visible judgment, and that's at the end of the chapter. There's invisible judgment and visible judgment. The visible judgment I'll deal with in the next hour. And that is where they're banished from the garden and the reason for it. But note first the invisible judgment of God upon them. In the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. They ate from it. If God is true and not a liar then death came upon them somehow, some way. But Eve ended up giving birth to children. So it didn't, you know, death in the way we traditionally look at it, the separation of soul from body, didn't happen immediately on the day that they ate from it. She had children. That takes a while to have. I say this is invisible judgment because we can't see the execution of divine judgment upon them. But something's changed within them. We know death was threatened 
And the day that they ate from it, in Genesis 2.17, and we also know from other places in the Bible that their created state became what it was not. For example, by the time you read Genesis uh, to Genesis, by the way, you don't have to read very far after Genesis 3 to see a bunch of sin, right? The first murder takes place. In Genesis 6.5, we read, every intent of the thoughts of his man's heart was only evil continually. Read the book of Genesis. It's full of sin and lies. In Romans 5.12, we read, Through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin. Okay, so that was Adam's first sin, and death came as a result of that first sin. What kind of death, though? All the kinds of death that we experience. Uh, spiritual death, physical death, and we could say eternal death, Eternal separation from the safe presence of God, uh, safe presence of God, unless God provides a way out. In Romans three twenty three, we read all have sinned. In Ephesians two one, we are told that unbelievers are dead in trespasses and sins. Ooh, there is a death that we all experience by virtue of God's judgment upon the entire human race, uh, in which we're actually living. The Walking Dead, Ephesians 2.1. I'm culturally relevant, aren't I? Some of the seasoned saints are going, what in the world are you talking about? An extra-creational state of existence came upon man by divine justice being executed. The occasion of it was Adam's eating of the forbidden Tree, invisible judgment. Can't see it. The, uh, the efficient cause of this change in man's state was God, not some finite infused power in the tree. That's the devil's view. The circumstantial cause was Adam's violation of the divine prohibition. You see the crafty serpent won, didn't he? He tweaked the word of God, and he got the son of God. Adam was the first son of God. In communion with God, to transgress. In a garden. In paradise. What happens when you read Luke 3 and Matthew, Luke 4 and Matthew 4? Out in the wilderness the Son of God incarnate, receives the darts of the deceiving craftiness of Satan and defeats him. The state brought upon Adam and Eve and the rest of us can be summed up in these words. This is an old 17th century document. It's our church's doctrinal statement. Although God created man upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law, which had been unto life had he kept it, and threatened death upon the breach thereof. What's he talking about? What's the confession talking about there? The prohibition, if he kept it, was actually going to be the occasion, not the cause, but the occasion for God to bring Adam into a better state than his created state. Yet he did not long abide in this honor. Satan, using the subtlety of the serpent to seduce Eve, then by her seducing Adam, who without any compulsion, that means God's upholding him by his divine power, his providence, but God's not forcing Adam to do this, then by her seducing Adam, who without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law of their creation. That's interesting. Now watch the next words. And the command given unto them in eating the forbidden fruit. Ah, the law of their creation, that which was written on their heart, and the positive law added, the prohibition. 
Remember I said before, at some point I'm going to show you that I think Adam and Eve broke all ten of the Ten Commandments. We confess that right here. They fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. Death came upon all. But we, you can't see it. But it was a transition from one state of existence, his created state, to his fallen state enacted by divine justice. All becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. The guilt of sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. I'm not going to stop the sermon here, by the way. This is terrible news, isn't it? Now, we, we don't, you can't see this happening. You go, oh. You can see, uh, I'm kicking them out of the garden. You can, you know, visualize that as well, uh, a little. But you can't see all this coming upon Adam and Eve's soul and, and body as well. Being now conceived in sin. That is, those who come from Adam and Eve by ordinary, ordinary generation are conceived in sin. In sin, my mother conceived me. So that would mean... Cain and Abel were conceived in sin. Not because the act between male and female in order for conception to happen is sinful, but because of this divine judgment upon the human race in the garden because of the eating of the forbidden tree. And by nature, children of wrath. You want me to stop? That's in the Bible. That's Ephesians 2, 3. The servants of sin. That's us outside of Christ. The subjects of death and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. That's ugly. Okay, but that's what came upon Adam and Eve and the rest of us that come from them, all that stuff, so that we're, you know, totally depraved. That is, every facet of our humanity, body and soul, is corrupted, is not what it was when it came from the hand of the maker because of a divine judgment that has come upon us, first of all, in our first parents. So that we're born... um, dead in our trespasses and sins, and we live life, if we're not believers in Christ, walking in trespasses and sins, yet we're the walking dead. We're spiritually dead. We're not in communion with God, and we can't change ourselves. We're, we're, we're not only totally depraved, we are unable to alter our condition. There's no tree we can eat from. There's no pill we can get from a doctor that's going to translate our present fallen state into a better state of existence. That comes only by virtue of a divine act. Only God can do that. And if he doesn't do it, we're going to hell. Now, I am a minister of Christ. Not Moses, not the law, but the law and the gospel. Let me just finish this section in our confession by, by reading some of the stuff I've already read to build up to the last statement in this chapter. The guilt of sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation... That's important. Being now conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death. Death is not natural. It's unnatural. That's why it it hurts so much. 
and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. Hallelujah. (laughs) There's a remedy. Unless the Lord Jesus set them free. You know our confession well enough. If you don't, you should. It's going to tell us about the Lord Jesus in chapter 8. Well, it starts in chapter 7, but unless the Lord Jesus sets them free, these guys that wrote this confession believed that there was a remedy for our plight. And the remedy for our plight is go to church every Sunday. You should go to church every Sunday, by the way. But going, doing, doesn't get us forgiveness of sins and the procurement of a sterling righteousness according to God's law. We can't, we don't, we're not there. It ain't going to happen. Unless the Lord Jesus set them free. Now, there's a plight. There's a problem here. The wages of sin is death, as described in what I just read. That was the invisible judgment of God that came upon Adam and Eve, and it's passed on to the rest of us who are born through ordinary generation, human seed, and a recipient, husband and wife, male, female. So we're in bad shape. Everyone is in bad shape. Tall, short, young, old, bored with this sermon or not. The wages of sin is death. We got way more sins than we realize. Death is the just desert that comes upon those who defy God's goodness. You remember what the devil's trying to do? God's not good. He's hiding from you the real goodies. If you ate the thing, you'd be, man, you'd know way more than you know now, and you'd be like God, and God doesn't want you to be like him and know stuff like he knows. The wages of sin is death for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we have at the first part of Romans 6.23, this is, I think, why it's such a favorite verse, especially when you first get converted. If you get converted in, in uh, your more riper years, the wages of sin is death. That's the plight. But, and here's the remedy, but the free gift of God is eternal life, that which the tree of life pointed to, in Christ Jesus our Lord, plus what we do for him. Nope. Thy works, not mine, O Christ. We sang that for a reason. Plight, uh, all of sin, uh, excuse me, the wages of sin is death. The day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Death came upon them, a a a state of existence came upon them by virtue of the execution of divine justice came upon them the day they ate. And we're all born into that same extra-creational state. The circumstance of which was the eating. The efficient cause was the divine justice threatened and then enacted. But notice this Romans 6.23 again, because I have five more minutes. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Free gift. How How can I become a Christian? Open your hands. But as many as received him. Faith is the passive, soiled hand that receives him, Christ. But as many as received him, to them he became, uh, to them he gave the right to become called sons of, or children of God. As many as received him, not as, as many as received him and did, and good, did, did enough things for him, if you do enough, you receive him, and then do enough things for him, Boy, you're, you're going to make it. 
No, you receive him and you get it. It's not receive him and do in order to get. It's receive him, you got it. Now be thankful. Now live your life. Now go back to the law. You can, you can express your gratefulness by doing what he says. If you say, well, I'm weak and feeble. Then he, he's instituted prayer. Tell him. It's me again. Weak, feeble. I fall asleep during prayer sometimes. I don't want to go to church sometimes. It's me. Please forgive me. Help me. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. Help me to forgive me of my sins. Help me to forgive other people of their sins. Uh, may your name be hallowed. It's not hallowed. Not only out there. I don't hallow it. At least like I ought. Please help me. May your kingdom come in my own heart and elsewhere. May your will be done. Help me to be content with my daily bread. You know, we could show our dependence upon him. Because when, if all you do is just say, well, I'm going to be a law keeper, you're going to get discouraged. But if you're going to say, you know what, I'm going to show my gratefulness by doing what God says which is going to drive me to pray more, or at least show forth my dependence on him in prayer more, because when I realize what my responsibility and my stewardship as a Christian is to my Lord, it seems still impossible. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The tragic consequences of the fall and the sin are with us today. Matter of fact, the taking of that fruit has produced, in one sense, today's meeting. But you know what else has produced today's meaning? The seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent. And we'll look at that next hour when we look at the visible judgment at the end of Genesis 3. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Our hearts uh, were greatly, well, I hope so, greatly disturbed by the contemplation of all the effects of the first sin that have come upon us. It's not as if we don't sin either and contribute to this mass, this world of sin that we live in. We do, way more than we realize. We thank you that in the midst of the tragic and dark shadows cast by the eating of the forbidden tree, that even in the midst of that, immediately after that, though judgment came in an invisible form upon them from God, the words of curse upon the serpent have actually within them couched a ray of glorious hope. One would come from a woman who would demolish the evil one. And in the midst of also doing that, be the grounds upon which our sins can be forgiven and a righteous, eternal life obtaining can be found. And it's not by us being the best Christians that we can be, even though we ought to be better than we are. It is all by the doing, the dying, the rising of Christ for us. Drill that deeply into our souls and receive this, our final uh, song of praise. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.